0: This morning we are going to uh, continue our studies and the confession of faith. We thought it would be good to have at least as much regularity in our routine as we can despite our circumstances and so I'm continuing since it's the first Lord's Day of this month of April with the confession of faith and it's going to be chapter 20. Hopefully you have printed up an outline for yourself or have one in front of you in one form or another. Um, that we made available if you don't have an outline uh, or a confession of faith in front of you if you have a trinity hymnal the confession of faith is found on page 681 of the baptist edition of the trinity hymnal this chapter is something that in a way is completely new Of course, it's 300-plus years old. I don't mean in that sense that it's completely new, but it's completely new in the sense that this chapter is not in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was authored by the men uh, of the Congregationalists who... Um, created the Savoy Declaration. They used the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's largely the same as the Westminster Confession, but they made, made some changes. And here is one of the most significant ones. They added an entire chapter, chapter 20. And so from this point on, the numbering of the chapters is different between the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession of Faith And since the Baptists followed the Congregationalist uh, statement, their chapters are different as well from the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are at least a couple of reasons why this chapter was included by the Savoy men. And one of them is this. The Congregationalists state in their preface that it seemed good to include a chapter on the gospel following the chapter on the law. So chapter 19 addresses the law, and it does that quite at length, and they felt that it would be good for us to have a chapter on the gospel. They're saying, though what we're saying here is really taught in other places in the Westminster Confession, we thought it would be good to state these things here. And then Sam Waldron suggests in his book on the 1689 Confession another factor and that is, it was a danger posed by two errors that were facing the church in England at that time. The first error is Arminianism. In the early 1600s, it was spreading in England. And this was, this uh, Savoy Declaration was written around the middle of that uh, 17th century. And then another error was Socinianism. So, Sinus was a 16th-century Italian heretic. He questioned—he didn't just question—he denied the divinity of Christ, that—that's taught in the Bible. He denied the doctrine of the Trinity, and he, died, he denied the reality of original sin and the doctrine of original sin. And John Owen, who was one of the Congregationalists, he may well have even been the man who penned this chapter. He saw Socinianism as the greatest danger to evangelicalism at that time in England. That's demonstrated by the fact that in volume 12 of his works, almost the first 1,600 pages are a treatise against Socinianism. It's entitled, The Mystery of the Gospel Vindicated and Socinianism Examined. Both the Arminians and the Socinians tried to broaden, from their perspective, they did broaden the narrow gate to include people who had no explicit faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, they said people can be saved and go to heaven without believing in Jesus Christ as long as they lived up to the light that they had and to the standards of their own cultures around them. Well, that was a growing error in that time, and we can say that uh, Socinianism hasn't died, even if people don't have a clue of, about the word Socinianism or the name of the man Socinus. And so they were combating that problem uh, that was found both in Socinianism and Arminianism. Well, there's a brief introduction as to this chapter's presence in the confession and why it's there. Let's begin then with paragraph one in the confession, and I've entitled it, The Revelation of the Gospel in the Promise of Christ. Paragraph one, let me read it. The covenant of of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life, God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel, as to the substance of it, was revealed and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. So you notice the first heading there, then, in this outline under paragraph one, is the setting or the occasion of this revelation. The setting of it is stated in the first line there, the covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life. So it takes us back to Eden. That's what this paragraph does at the beginning. And it uses that phrase covenant of works. Now, some of you may remember all the way back in chapter 7, I said something about the use of that phrase covenant of works. And I pointed out that it's not found in chapter 7, though it is in chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession and of the Savoy Declaration. The Baptists didn't use it, and some people have thought, therefore they didn't believe in a covenant of works, meaning a covenant between God and Adam, and through him all mankind at the very beginning of creation. But that's not the case, as I pointed out. I said the authors of the confession, Nehemiah Cox was one of them, they did believe in a covenant of works, and that's why it's found here. Um, That's standard Reformed terminology. I pointed out back then that it's not strictly biblical because you don't find that phrase in the Bible. (laughs) However, here they're bringing out this point here, that the covenant of works was broken by sin. So it takes us back to Edom. Eden, I should say, not Edom, but Eden. So let's notice point one there under heading A. It's Adam's sin. It takes us back, as I said, to Genesis 3. You can turn back there. We'll read verse 15 in a moment. But that's what it's talking about, Adam's sin, when it says there that... Uh, the covenant of works was broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life. So the second thing we want to notice is the breaking of the covenant of works. And I, want to, I put that under two headings. The violation of the covenant by Adam and the rendering of the covenant ineffectual. So there's the breaking of the covenant of works. The first way we could say the covenant of works was broken is that the covenant with Adam was between Adam and God was violated. It says the covenant being broken, a covenant of works being broken by sin. And the point is simply this even if you don't like the terminology covenant of works, you can agree with this. God gave Adam a command, Adam and Eve broke it. And here they're calling that the breaking of the covenant of works, kind of like a marriage covenant. In a wedding, two people vow to each other. They make promises that they're going to keep before God. And the husband promises to uh, love his wife, to cherish her, and so on. The wife promises to love, honor, and obey her husband. And the Bible tells us that that covenant can be broken by an act of sin, specifically the sin of adultery. And if that sin is committed, the covenant is violated. Well, when Adam sinned by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he violated the covenant. He broke it in that sense. But then I put another way that the covenant was broken. I put the rendering of the covenant ineffectual. It says then, and that covenant was made unprofitable unto life. In other words, if Adam had kept that, pro- that um, command, if he had obeyed it, we presume at some point God would have confirmed him in a state of life. That's what the Baptists and the Congregationalists were saying here, and the Presbyterians believe the same thing. And what they're saying is that when that covenant was broken, the covenant was now ineffectual. It couldn't bring life. It was too late. It had already been broken. And the Scripture uses this kind of language in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. If you want to turn there, I'll read that. Hebrews 8, 6 to 8. This text is about the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's not about the covenant of works, but it is true about the covenant of works in principle. Notice what it says in Hebrews 8, 6 to 8. But now he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, because the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now there the difference distinction is between the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant. But the point is this. What it says is there was a problem with that first covenant, But what was the problem? Well, verse 8 tells us, finding fault with them. In other words, the covenant in itself was not the problem. It was the people with whom God was making the covenant, and they couldn't keep it. And that's the problem now in the Garden of Eden, they're saying. The covenant of works was made unprofitable unto life. Why? Because of the sin of those with whom God had made that covenant originally with us. So since the covenant was broken, in, a sense, in the sense of being violated, now, as a result, it is ineffectual. That's the point they're making. So there's the setting or occasion of this revelation. And now we come to the focal point or the central point of this revelation. It's in the next clause. God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman. And now let's read Genesis 3.15, because I say, as I say, this is really the focal point, the central point of this revelation here. It's in the Garden of Eden, and in this promise, this statement of God to Eve after the fall into sin. It's a familiar statement. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and the and her seed he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel the seed of the woman of course is jesus christ at this point and the devil's seed the seed of the of the devil or the serpent is the the satan himself you will bruise his head Christ will bruise his head. He will destroy him. You, this, is, this wasn't spoken to the, to the woman, I'm sorry. It's spoken to the serpent. That's why I was getting, confusing myself there. And then it says, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the devil will be fighting against Christ, but ultimately the devil will have his head crushed by Christ. And some have called this the proto evangel that is the first gospel, the first statement of the gospel. And this is what the writers are saying is the case here. That's why I say this text is the focus of this paragraph. So let's notice uh, the, the, the points under it first. And I don't have them listed there. Oh, Let me see. Uh, point B. Yes, I have them listed. The promise of Christ and the Christ of the promise. Very simply. The promise of Christ. God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ. In other words, there in the garden, on that occasion, after man had fallen into sin, God gave forth the promise of Christ in that statement in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel it's a promise that christ will destroy the devil and then let's notice secondly the christ of the promise it says after it mentions christ it identifies him as the seed of the woman so it's identifying the savior who would come now as the old testament went on we'd get a more explicit identification of christ he would be the seed of david so he would come from the line of david and would be a king of israel but here it's more general all that's stated here is in terms of his identity is that he is the god man doesn't tell us yet uh, that he's the god man but it tells us he's at least going to be a man the seed of the woman of eve he's going to be the offspring of these very sinners who broke the covenant there's the christ of the promise And then third, under paragraph one, let's notice the proximate goal of this promise. Proximate means immediate or near as opposed to the ultimate goal. And the proximate goal of this promise is as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. In other words, this promise is going to be a means of bringing sinners to life before God. They're dead in their sins now. All of them are. But the promise is that Christ will come and he will bring life to sinners. He will be the gospel. The promise of Christ is the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. That takes us back to chapter 10 on calling about the way God brings sinners to life in Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. The thing we want to notice right now is this is the proximate goal of this promise. As I said, it's the immediate or near goal as opposed to the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is expressed for us in a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, and following, where it says that in the end, Christ is going to come again. He's going to raise up all those who have believed in him and then... The Christ is going to give everything, in a sense, over to the Father. Christ is reigning over now, but then God will be all in all. That's the ultimate goal of Christ's work and the promise of Christ. But the proximate goal, the more immediate goal, is to bring sinners to faith in Christ. The The Confession mentions that in particular because the subject of the chapter is the proclamation and spread of the gospel. So as the gospel is proclaimed and spread in the world, this is what happens. The elect are called out, and they come to saving faith in Christ. They are born again. It's not saying that's the only goal, but that's the goal especially that this chapter has in view. So there's the proximate goal of this promise. And then fourth, the good news of this revelation. The good news of this revelation It says, In this promise, the gospel as to the substance of it was revealed and is an effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. So the point is, the gospel uh, was revealed in this first promise way back in Genesis 3.15. As I said, theologians like to call this the first gospel or the first statement of the gospel. So let's notice the headings there, the, for two things. First, the gospel, the promise of salvation in Christ. And the point is, this is the substance of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, a savior is going to come. He will bruise the head of the serpent. He will have his heel bruised. He will suffer, which Christ did. But ultimately, he's going to win the, the A serpent might bruise his heel and he'll have to walk around a little bit with a sore heel, but with that heel, he will also crush the head of the serpent. One preacher, I think it was Pastor Donnelly, had expressed it that way. Maybe he wasn't the first, but uh, we think of a snake, the serpent, with his fangs in the heel of Christ, the man, and the man with his heel, though he feels the pain of the the bite of the serpent he takes that heel and he forces itself down on the head of the serpent and crushes it that's the idea but that's the gospel the promise of salvation in christ and think of how the gospel comes to us then in a couple of places in the new testament where it tells us about the work of christ first statement here is john 12 31 that comes out of jesus own mouth Shortly before he died, he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's going to crush the head of the serpent when he goes to the cross. That's what he was saying. Another statement is in Colossians chapter 2. It says that in the cross, this is Colossians 2 verse 15, Christ disarmed principalities and powers. That's demonic forces and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. There's Christ with his heel bruised on the cross, but he's crushing the head of the serpent. Back in chapter 7 of the Confession, paragraph 3, it stated it this way about this gospel, which was revealed back there in the Garden of Eden. It says, This covenant, meaning the new covenant, is revealed in the gospel first of all to adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman and afterwards by farther steps in other words throughout the whole old testament until the full discovery thereof was completed in the new testament the revelation of the gospel was a process But we shouldn't think the gospel was never revealed until the the apostles went out and began to preach it after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. No. What they're telling us here in chapter 20 is the same thing they were saying back in chapter 7, is that the gospel was first proclaimed in the garden. We could say directly to the devil, but Adam and Eve heard it, And God's people have had it ever since Moses wrote it down here in Genesis 3.15. The gospel, the revelation of the gospel was a a process, but they're saying the promise first came here in Genesis 3.15. And then the second point there, the gospel, the means of conversion and salvation of sinners. The confession states it this way In this promise, the gospel was revealed and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. Let's go to Romans 10 and notice this point. It's one of the proof texts that they give for the confession here in this paragraph. Romans chapter 10 that you can really look at uh, don't do it right now but verses 13 to 17 make this point but let's just read verses 14 and 15 of Romans 10 it says how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You see the point. If people are going to be saved, they have to hear the gospel. They have to hear the gospel of peace. They have to have a preacher. So the point is that the gospel is necessary, but here they're saying the gospel is effectual. When it is preached and sinners hear it and believe it, they're saved. It actually works. That's the point. It is actually effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. So there's paragraph one. Now we come to paragraph two. The exclusive vehicle for this revelation we're told that it's the the revelation of god's promise comes in the gospel now we're going to say that's the exclusive vehicle for this revelation what we're going to hear what is the exclusive vehicle for this revelation in paragraph two by vehicle i mean means of delivery how is the gospel delivered well here's how it says this promise of christ And salvation by him is revealed only by the word of God. Neither do the works of creation or providence with the light of nature make discovery of Christ or of grace by him, so much as in a general or obscure way, much less that men destitute of the revelation of him by the promise or gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith or repentance." most of the paragraphs in the Confession are a mouthful. Some of them might seem a little bit harder to follow. One of the things that struck me as I read this paragraph and studied it and worked on it was that there probably is a good argument just in the way it's worded to say that Owen did write it. It's not the most easily understood on the face of it, but let's work our way through it. First of all, it states that the promise was revealed only in God's word. Notice the wording again. This promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only by the word of God. Now, that's simple enough. We could say that's the implication of what I read in Romans 10, of all of Romans 10, verses 13 to 17. If they're going to call on God's name, they have to hear God's name. And if they're, they're going to hear God's name and understand it so they know whom to call on, they have to hear it in the gospel. They need a preacher of the gospel. They need the word of God. That's the point. Let's go back to Romans 1 for a moment. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. If people are going to be saved, they have to hear the gospel. Where is that revealed? It's revealed in the word of God. It says in Romans 1:16. Paul's words here for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall be by faith the gospel is revealed in the bible the word of god we need the word of god otherwise we can't be saved this is the point the the Gospel of Christ is revealed only by the Word of God. The point is made in psalm nineteen we won 't take the time to turn there, but if you 're familiar with Psalm nineteen You know how the first six verses speak about the heavens declaring the glory of God. And then it talks about the sun making its run from east to west every day. And the sun declares the glory of God. And the sky declares it. And the stars and the planets declare it. That God is there. God is here. God is the maker of all things. But then in verses 7 to 10, there's a switch. It just starts abruptly talking about the word of God. And in verse 7, where it makes that switch, the pivot, we could say, from talking about God revealing himself in nature or creation, it talks about God revealing himself in his word. And the first statement there is this, the law of the Lord. In other words, the written word of God is perfect, converting the soul. And that's why it's so precious to us, as it goes on to say in that psalm. In other words, the heavens can reveal God, and they do, but they can't reveal him in such a way that sinners can be saved by him. The word of God does what the heavens cannot do. And so that's the point here. The, this promise of Christ and salvation by, by him is revealed only by the word of God, not by what we call natural or general revelation, Only by special revelation. And then point B notice the futility or the ineffectiveness of natural revelation or natural means of revelation from the creation. It says, neither do the works Of creation or providence, with the light of nature, make discovery of Christ, or of grace by him, so much as in a general or obscure way. In other words, you may think so highly of yourself, now you've heard the gospel, but let's say you can think so highly of yourself and your intelligence that, well, if I had never heard the gospel from my parents or from a preacher, just by looking at the creation, I would have figured out how to be saved. And they're saying, no, that absolutely could not happen. The works of creation and providence with the light of nature, even with your great mind, could never reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ to you and you could never be saved through that means. Then it says at the end, notice where it says so much. That means not even in some general or obscure way. In other words, you wouldn't even get to the outer contours or outlines of the gospel by yourself, just with the light of nature. You need the Word of God. And again, I would point you to Psalm 19, but also Romans 1, 17 and following, where it goes on to say, That God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, and that God's wrath is, is revealed in part. God is blaming people for their unbelief in part because they know enough from nature to know that they should serve and worship God, but they don't. It doesn't say they know enough from nature or creation to be saved, just they know enough to be guilty. That's the point. But the point of this paragraph is they need the gospel to be saved. And then point three there, point C, the impossibility of salvation without God's word. The impossibility of salvation without God's word. The last part of that paragraph reads, much less, in other words, Men can't figure it out just looking at creation, much less that men destitute of the revelation of him by the promise of the gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith or repentance. In other words, the point last time was they can't even get a clue, they can't even get the first clues of how to be saved. Here it says, much less could they actually be saved if they're men who don't have that revelation. Let's notice Romans 2, verses 12 to 15. Classic text to make this point. Paul says in verse 12, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. Those without law in this sense are those without the revelation of God in the Old Testament. That's the law. And it's saying if people have lived their whole life without the Old Testament, which most of the world at that time had done, they're still going to perish without law. In other words, they know enough to be damned through creation, the law written on their hearts and what they see in creation, but not enough to be saved. So they're going to perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. In other words, Jewish unbelievers are going to be condemned even though they had the law written. Just having it doesn't save. You have to have faith. And then verse 13, for that not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And now verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Why? Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, and whose conscience also bears witness And between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. We know because of the way that God made us that we're condemned because we don't obey God, but we don't understand the remedy. It's only the gospel that reveals that. Not only do men need it, they need the gospel to be saved. Even if they don't have it, they're still held responsible for their moral condition for their unbelief for their sin this point that's made here in this paragraph that the word of god is the exclusive vehicle for the revelation of the gospel is made at the very beginning of this confession of faith chapter 1 verse 1 or paragraph 1 look at what it listen to what it says The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. So there's a fuller statement, if you will, of this point. And here they're saying it's the gospel in the written word of God that men near need to hear and believe. And now, on the third paragraph, I want to um, let you know that I changed my outline. That's right, it's Pastor Chansky, it's not Pastor Carlson, but I changed my outline. And here's how I changed it. I made points A, B, and C. I made those all points 1, 2, and 3 of what will be the new heading C. You'll see it when, as we go. I added a new point A, a new point B, and then uh, point C. You'll see what it is in a moment, which will be the point of the paragraph but this paragraph is the sole determining factor of the extent of this revelation of the gospel so the question here we could say that this uh, paragraph is addressing is this if only the christ of the promise saves us and if only those who hear the gospel are saved by christ then why doesn't everyone hear the gospel because everyone doesn't hear the gospel and certainly everyone is not saved by the gospel so this is this question is this this paragraph is saying that there's only one determining factor of how far this revelation goes so let's read it The revelation of the gospel unto sinners is made in divers, that's various times, and by sundry parts, with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein, as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted, is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God." not being annexed by virtue of any promise to the due improvement of men's natural abilities by virtue of common light received without it, which none did ever make or can do so. And therefore, in all ages, the preaching of the gospel has been granted unto persons and nations as to the extent or straightening of it in great variety according to the counsel of the will of God. All right first part of the paragraph the subject of the paragraph who will hear the gospel so that's my new uh, outline point a the subject of the paragraph is who will hear the gospel notice what it says the revelation of the gospel unto sinners that's the point of the entire chapter chapter 20 as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted that's the point of this particular pa- paragraph The people, the nations, to whom the gospel is granted. Right. So that's the subject of the paragraph. Who will hear the gospel? What nations will hear it? There are some tongues in this world where the gospel has not yet been heard. Hasn't been proclaimed in that tongue. Bible hasn't been written in their tongue. At the time of uh, Israel... In the time of the New Testament, the nations hadn't heard the gospel yet. Not until the disciples started going out and preaching. Only one nation had heard it, basically. So that's the subject of the paragraph, who will hear the gospel. Point B, the history of the gospel's spread. It says, the revelation of the gospel unto sinners, now they're looking back at his history, past history, made in diverse times and by sundry parts, with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted. What they're saying is, so far, here's what's happened. It was made in different ways and in different parts. Remember I said it was proclaimed very early in the Garden of Eden, but then it was expanded till we come to the New Testament itself. So let's look at some highlights here of the history of the spread of the gospel Some highlights will begin with Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3.15. Remember, that's the beginning of the gospel, if you will, stated in that very simple statement to Adam and Eve, or to the devil, but indirectly to Adam and Eve. Then secondly, we have the gospel coming, just in my brief thumbnail sketch, coming to Abraham. Notice how it says, with the addition of promises and precepts. In other words, there were some new promises that came to Abraham. He was going to be the father of many nations, right? And he was going to have a seed, a large... He didn't think he would because he and his wife, by the time he got 100, they didn't have a child of promise yet. But he was going to have a seed, and he was going to have the land of Canaan given to him, and his, his seed was going to be made a blessing to all the world. There's added promises and precepts, Right? You've got to circumcise all of the males in your family. And then third, there's the the gospel coming to Moses and the nation of Israel. And there were many, many additional promises. And many additional precepts, as it says, with the addition of promises and precepts. Let's notice two things about the gospel then as it's coming, making its way as it comes to Moses and the nation of Israel. First... The revelation of the gospel at that time was only revealed to a small percentage of the world as far as the nations that heard the gospel. Only one. Listen to Psalm 147, 19 and 20. He, that is God, declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. In other words, to that nation. He has not dealt thus with any nation, that is, any other nation besides Israel. And as for his judgments, they, the other nations, have not known them. Praise the Lord. So the revelation of the gospel at the time of the nation of Israel was only revealed to a small percentage of the world. Second point under this is that the revelation of the gospel to Israel was tailored uniquely to them. Remember how it said there with the addition of promises and precepts? Some of those laws given through Moses were only for that nation. We've seen that already just in the previous chapter. Let me remind you in paragraph 3 of chapter 19 what it said. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. And then finally, We have the gospel full-blown, we could say, coming in the New Testament age. Let's just turn to one passage, Titus 1, verses 1 through 3. Titus 1, verses 1 through 3. Here we have the words of the Apostle Paul. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, And the acknowledgement of the truth which is according to godliness in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began but in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. In other words now even though the gospel was first preached not in as clear a way at all to Adam and Eve right after the fall now it is preached full-blown through the apostle paul and the other apostles and all new testament preachers of the gospel now the gospel comes to all the world but not to all nations equally and not to every individual in every nation either all right so there we have the history if you will of the gospel spread bringing us right up to the New Testament age. And then point C is my new outline is this, the extent of the spread of the gospel, excuse me, no, no, I said already what the new new heading is, the point of the paragraph. This is the heart of the paragraph and it's really the heart of the whole chapter that we're studying. That the point of the paragraph, and I have it in three headings, it's the old A, B, and C, I believe. Number one, only god's will determines who will hear the gospel only god's will determines who will hear the gospel notice how the confession states it the revelation of the gospel unto sinners now i'm skipping a little bit as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of god so as you are asking that question that i said this this paragraph is addressing Why doesn't everyone hear the gospel? The the bottom line answer is this. We don't know all the whys and the wherefores, but we do know this. It is merely because it is God's sovereign will and good pleasure. And then the second point. No good conduct, thoughts, or impressions influence God's will notice what it says not being annexed in other words the gospel does not come to people because of any of these reasons not being annexed by virtue of any promise to the due improvement of men's natural abilities that's arminianism that's pelagianism that if People will just do, they'll live up to the light they have and try their best. God will reveal the gospel to them so they can be saved. They're saying, no, that's not promised anywhere in the Bible. And not by virtue of common light received without it. The light of nature or creation, which none ever did make or can do so. People can't do that. Let me give you a couple of texts here. I'll just read them. For the sake of time, John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood. In other words, it's not who their parents were, nor of the will of the flesh, because they were people who really wanted to be saved. They were searching. Nor of the will of man, but of God. It is only of God. That's all that determines who will be saved. Romans 9.16 is similar. So then it is not of him who wills, who wants to be saved, nor of him who runs, who does every possible thing a sinful human can be, do to be saved. No, but of God who shows mercy. That's what we call the doctrine of grace, isn't it? And then point three under this heading is the extent of, of the spread of the gospel, is thus entirely arbitrary. What does arbitrary mean? Well, it means it's based on or subject to individual discretion or preference. Now, sometimes people take it to mean individual impulse or caprice. In other words, what you just happen to feel like at a given time or day. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't wake up on a bad day and have a bad day and say I'm going to damn some people or have a good day and say I think I'll save some people. No. God just does this on the basis of his individual discretion or preference. And so it means not humans discretion or preference but God's that's what I mean when I say the extent of the spread of the gospel is thus entirely arbitrary notice how the confession states it and therefore in all ages the preaching of the gospel has been granted unto persons and nations as to the extent that is how wide it goes or the straightening of it how narrow it goes in great variety according to the counsel of the will of God Romans nine twenty two says this: What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, what if God just wanted to do that? Well, then He does that. And John Owen says in writing on this point in one of his works, he says our question turns upon the simple will of God Himself. Let me give you a scriptural example of it. Acts 16, verses 6 and 7. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. There's the gospel being straightened. It's not going to Asia, not at this moment. All those people who live in Asia at that time, they're not going to hear it. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia But the Spirit did not permit them. And then after all that, you remember, they ended up in Macedonia. Paul had that dream, come over to Macedonia and help us. The point is, God's sovereign purpose was that those people in Asia and Bithynia, they were not going to hear the gospel. They were not going to be saved. While those in Macedonia were given the gospel, and some of those people were saved. In other words, when we say it's entirely arbitrary, it's according to God's good purpose. And as far as our knowing that, what all lay behind it, lies behind it, and how it's all going to work out, there's no uniformity that we can see. There's no predictable pattern that we can lay hold of and say, here's how it's going to work. We'll plan this evangelistic campaign and so many people are going to be saved and so many churches are going to be established. They're saying hogwash. Even when it comes to the way the gospel is spread. It's not going to be spread evenly across the face of the earth. But however it is spread, it's going to be according to God's purpose. This is a truth taught in chapter 3 of God's decree. It's especially taught in chapter 3, paragraph 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says this, The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of God. Of his glorious justice. So there is the sole determining factor of the extent of this revelation. It's just the sovereign will of God. But then, fourth paragraph, I've entitled The Secret Power of This Revelation. The Secret Power of This Revelation. And I use the word secret, meaning it's not outward, but it's inward. It mentions, in a a moment we'll read, it mentions the work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul of a sinner. So it's an inward working. It's secret in that sense. And then it's also secret in that it's not discernible in itself. I'm thinking of the statement in John chapter 3 and verse 8 here. This is the secret power of this revelation. John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. But let's read the paragraph. Although the gospel be the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace and is as such abundantly sufficient thereunto, Yet that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, quickened or regenerated, there is moreover necessary an effectual, insuperable work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul for the producing in them a new spiritual life, without which no other means will effect their conversion unto God. Now for that last two-thirds of this paragraph, you can really go back and go over again chapter 10 of effectual calling but let's just notice these two main heads first the sufficiency of the gospel they say although the gospel be the only outward means of revealing christ and saving grace and is as such abundantly sufficient thereunto so it's it's reviewing this point of the sufficiency of the gospel it was already made in paragraph one Uh, where it said, in this promise, the gospel, as to the substance of it, was revealed and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. The gospel saves sinners. It's effectual for that purpose. We saw it in paragraph two, where it said, this promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only by the word of God. Look at it this way. Here we have this crisis of COVID-19 overtaking the whole world. Imagine someone shows up and says, "Look, I have the the answer that it's going to cure everybody." Really? What is it? Well, it's 3 grains of table salt. Anyone who gets the 3 grains of table salt, puts it under his tongue and ingests it in that way, he's going to be healed of this disease. Similar to the idea that it's the preaching of this message of Jesus Christ on the cross that is going to be able to save the whole world. <laughs> You're crazy, right? Colossia, uh, 1 Corinthians 1. The, the Greeks say that's foolishness. The Jews say it's scandalous. But God says the foolishness of preaching is what saves. And that's what they're underscoring here. It's the gospel that is effectual to save people. Even the vilest of all the sinners in the world, it can save them all. But then point out this, it's not just the gospel that they need to have. The part B is the necessity of the Spirit's working. First, they state it positively, positively stated, yet that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, quickened, or regenerated, There is moreover necessary an effectual, insuperable work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul for the producing in them a new spiritual life. In other words, it's not just that you have to get the gospel in men's ears. If they're going to be saved, it takes this supernatural work, almighty work of the Holy Spirit of God to renew their lives, to make them new creatures. A couple of texts. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Two men can hear the gospel on the same day. One goes away dead as he ever was in his trespasses and sins. The other one goes away alive. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God opened his eyes, opened his ears, opened his heart, and perform this supernatural work on his soul and then john 3 verses 3 and 5 jesus words most assuredly i say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god most assuredly i say to you unless one is born of water in the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god it's pictured in ezekiel 37 the field of dry bones what's added to the dry bones That ends up bringing them to life. It's the breath of God, the Spirit of God. As the Word of God is spoken, the breath of God, the Spirit of God causes the dry bones to live. That's what they're saying. Secondly, under the necessity of the Spirit's working is this. It's negatively stated, without which no other means will effect their conversion unto God no other means will affect their conversion unto god first corinthians 2 verse 14 says it this way but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of god for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned the spirit of god has to reveal it to people without that no one will be saved he can hear the gospel a hundred times a thousand times he can hear it by the hundred best preachers the world has ever known. If the Spirit of God doesn't work in his heart, that preaching is going to be ineffective to save him. Practical application, one minute. Maybe, I'll need to, um, maybe what I need to do is just state the headings of the practical application and maybe preach a sermon on it later. But here's the practical application, point one, from paragraph three, which says, only God's will determines who will hear the gospel. We have this practical application. Therefore, we praise God. That's what the psalmist did. I read that verse, those verses in Psalm 147. He said, God has only given this revelation to one nation and not to all the rest. Next words out of his mouth, praise the Lord. Jesus did something similar, didn't he, when he said, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. First application, we praise God. Second application comes from the sufficiency of the gospel. The gospel is the only way for sinners to be saved. Not the light of nature, not people being as good as they can with the light that they have. They have to hear the gospel, so the application is easy. Preach the gospel. Evangelize every sinner and keep the centrality of preaching in the church of Christ. And then third and finally, from the last point we just saw, the necessity of the Spirit's working We don't trust ourselves. We do earnestly pray, God, send your spirit to our needy world. Well, that's where I have to end. But let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We bless you and praise you that you alone determine who will hear the gospel and who will be saved by the gospel help us to give you that praise help us to shut our mouths when we think of this great reality of your sovereign will and your sovereign mercy and grace and father stir us up to pray and to preach the gospel send O lord your holy spirit in a mighty mighty way and attend all the gospel preaching that goes on on this Lord's Day throughout this needy world. May there be many, many ears to hear, and may there be many, many hearts that are transformed by that gospel on this day. And we ask it in Jesus Christ, your Son's name. Amen.